Welcome to the Rocks Podcast. The book of James brings a nice balance to the other New Testament letters. The Apostle Paul emphasizes that we are saved by faith alone and not by works. James, on the other hand, reminds us that true faith will produce good works, for faith without works is dead. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through this very practical epistle. A news story off the web. A hundred years of Christian fellowship, spiritual love, godly unity, and community growth ended last Tuesday in a fit of congregational discord not to be rivaled in this century. I've changed the name of the church. Holy Ghost Christian Church was split down the middle like the veil in the temple after Jesus' crucifixion. It is said that one could hear that rip a hundred miles away. The church was plunged into several splintered groups, and there's been nothing but chaos ever since. The source of dissension in this once holy house of God? A piano bench, which still sits behind the 1923 Steinberg to the left of the pulpit. The problems seem to be about the placement or the reupholstery of the historic bench. There are mixed stories about how it all got started, who owned it, who donated it, who eventually will get it, all of that. At present, the congregation will be having four separate services. As a result, since the head pastor is not speaking to the associate pastor, each will have their own service, which will be attended by the separate factions within the church. We are told that the services are far enough apart that neither group will come into contact with the other. An outside party will be moving the piano bench to different locations and appropriate positions between the services so as to please both sides and, quote, avoid any further conflict that could result in violence. You know the wow thing, (laughs) W-O-W? Let's all do that together. Well, I can't believe you did that. That's amazing. What is wrong with you people? (laughs) One would think the last place on earth you're going to find a bunch of petty, bickering, slandering, gossipy folks in disunity would be a Christian fellowship where the slogan is, for God so loved the world, and beloved, let us love one another with the love we ourselves have been shown. Kent Hughes, one of my favorite commentators, on his commentary on the book of James and this chapter, writes about an Episcopalian church that had a tradition. One part in the worship service they would break, like we do, but here's what they would do. One greets the other with a handshake and says, Peace be with you. And the other one must respond and say, Peace be with you. And so this is what they did for many, many years. Well, this church in New York, a congregation began squabbling 
among themselves about important things like somebody wasn't included in the church directory or somebody got left out of the choir or, you know, all those important things. And so cliques started to form and a group went to the pastor. And they said, about that handshake time, we're feeling a little hypocritical. We don't want to be saying that when the feelings aren't really in our hearts. We would like to forego that time. Just, just take it out. And the pastor said, well, instead of fearing about being hypocrites, why don't you just change your heart? And then you could really wish them peace. And they fired him. They replaced him with a pastor who forwent the entire peace be unto you fellowship time. Well, this kind of nonsense has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Stories like these would be kind of humorous if they weren't so pathetic and tragic and real. When Christians cannot get along with one another, it sends a terrible message to unbelieving, un, unbe, unbelieving onlookers as they look in and read an article like that about so-called loving Christians, loving one another. Uh, Jesus said in John 13, verse 35, the kind of love that I want you to have for each other, people are going to stop, look, and listen, and they're going to know you're my disciples by that kind of love. Love for enemies. Love that covers a multitude of sins. Love that forgives quickly. This kind of Christian love. He says, when you're doing that right, people are going to stop and go, wow, what's up with you? You must be connected to something more supernatural. And so, you know, when Christians can't get it together like that, it prevents a congregation from becoming what God intends it to be. James has already set you up for chapter 4 by concluding with this thought, an environment of peace is necessary for the production of good deeds and right behavior. He said that's the environment you must have for God to be able to produce good things in people's lives. There must be peace. And that was not happening in these congregations to whom James is writing. And now it also will say something really serious about the so-called faith in the hearts of people that carry on like that. Now James is writing to very sick and pathetic Jewish Christian congregations in first century Rome, Roman Empire, I should say, all scattered around, uh, where this kind of congregational chaos is really part and parcel of their Christian life together. Now, inspired by the Holy Spirit, James wants to get to the bottom of that kind of behavior and to give them reasons and a remedy. Now, if I were to title chapter 4 uh, with a, some kind of label, I would say it, how to end wars is the point of chapter 4. Let's start with verse 1. Now, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you don't ask God. And when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives, 
that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. That is why the scriptures say, Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 34, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Let's park there in these six verses. There's plenty to consider. Now, while we're blessed to have a congregation that has a reputation in this Sonoma County for being one of the warmest, friendliest churches in town. I hear this all the time when I travel around and talk to other pastors and pastors are sharing with other pastors about their church problems. I have nothing to share. I cannot rival their stories. I talk about starting with 20 people eight years ago and and having doubled in size in every building we go and people get along with each other. The, The elders and the deacons are best friends. They love one another. Everyone who serves on staff are friends. They have each other over for dinner. Everybody in the lobby is happy. When, when, when we take a break, there's an, an explosion of fellowship and laughing. On Wednesday nights, people stay until 9.30, 10 o'clock. We have to force them out of the building. <laughs> I look around on Wednesday nights. First of all, we're in the middle of the Old Testament, and people are coming out and staying late. And I mean, you have to flash the lights on and off, and it is just incredible. So no. I cannot relate to pastoring a congregation with a lot of bickering and problems. We don't have that problem. But I like to listen because it is not, we are not above sinning and becoming self-absorbed and letting a good thing go bad. We are not above that. We are sinners saved by grace. We are vulnerable. And so when I read a passage like this, I take what's good and and get affirmed by what James is trying to say. And I also, as nauseating as it sometimes can make you to hear, you covet and kill, you adulterers. It's cool. It's kind of like chemotherapy. It makes you nauseous, but it kills the cancer, you know? And so I I don't mind listening to that. So today we're going to look at these six verses as confrontive as they are, and um, we're going to look at two things, the reasons for the fighting and the remedy to bring healing and restoration. So first of all, James has already kind of told us some of the reasons behind their fussing and fighting, their confusion, their disunity, their frustrated Christian life. He's already alluded to that, and it shouldn't surprise us at this point in the epistle, in chapter 4, that these congregations were more like the World Wrestling Federation than any Christian fellowship. James has already talked about an unbridled tongue. People who just say whatever they feel like saying. People who have no compassion for the needy. He's mentioned playing favorites. And, and so now he's really set you up for the reasons he's going to elaborate now in, in chapter 4 and chapter 3. When he said in his closing verse of chapter 3, uh, where you have selfish 
ambition. There you will find disorder, confusion, and every evil practice. And now, chapter 4, he's going to just kind of reiterate and elaborate. So he says, folks, you guys have bowed at the altar, the unholy altar of the unholy trinity, which I always bring up to you. Not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but me, myself, and I. When you worship at that altar, you will find confusion, disunity, and every form of evil thing. That's what he said. Selfish ambition is when it's all about me. It doesn't matter about God, his word, my conscience, or my consequences to you. It's all about me. Selfish ambition or a self-absorbed life will always produce broken relationships. Fighting, quarreling is just a natural consequence. And so James is saying, you can see the relational mess. You know, people taking sides, gossiping little cliques that quiet down when you walk up. Uh, Friends are divided. Families are split. There are hurt feelings. People are insulted. There's awkward silences when you're seated with somebody at the church potluck. Well, you know, wow, you got that last part, didn't you? (laughs) The awkward silences. That's funny. Uh, The problem problem is a direct result of being self-absorbed and self-absorbed people. Now, it's serious. So let's look at these verses It's very serious, and we can see that by his rhetorical question. He's asking questions that don't require your answer. So right away he's saying, what causes these fights and quarrels among you? Right away, the Greek, people who understand Greek knew this is serious because the word for fight and quarrel, what causes fights, polymos in the Greek, what causes quarrels, make in the Greek, Normal words for national warfare, armed combat where angry men fought fiercely against each other with weapons and force meant to do bodily harm and to kill. Those are the two words. He says, what's causing this warfare in your midst? Now, by the way, I would like to say, let us not romanticize the early church because the early church were congregations like this. There are some people who say modern church needs to return to the purity and the simplicity of early church life. Really? Warfare? And uh, how about the Corinthians? I like Paul. Well, I like Peter. Well, I like Paulus. And they had little groups like that. And in Corinth, they were getting drunk at the communion time. And at Corinth, they were suing each other in front of unbelieving judges. That was Corinth. In the Galatian church, they were caught up in legalism. All of a sudden, all the Christians were like, oh, it's really cool if you could be a Jew too. So we're going to have to become Jewish and start to eat kosher. And there was big squabbling about that. The Philippians, they had two ladies who were causing all of this trouble and disunity and bickering. Even at the church in Jerusalem, a dispute broke out with the widows. The Jewish Christian widows were, were claiming that, the, or I should say, the Greek, the Gentile 
Christian widows in the Jerusalem church were saying, you guys are favoring the Jewish Christian ladies here in Jerusalem. And so, you know, let's take what was good back then, but let's not overly romanticize the early church. They had a lot of problems. And so he says, what causes these fights and quarrels among you? He's saying your congregations are cold and uncaring, filled with mean-spirited, self-centered, sharp-tongued people who care simply about themselves. And he gives the answer right away, another question. He doesn't give them time to answer. What causes all of this fighting among you? He says, wouldn't you agree the cause of all of the strife is your own tweaked desires that battle within you? Now, you'll notice there are no verses in between the two questions because he doesn't want them to answer because if you gave them a little time to answer, they would answer when you say, when Pastor James says, what causes all the problems? And they would say, well, it's so-and-so stupidity or it's so-and-so insensitivity or it's so-and-so spiritual immaturity. But he says, no, it isn't. What's the problem? It's you. In this case, it's not the deacon, it's not the elder, it's not the congregation. It's not the guy sitting next to you. He says, can we talk about what's raging in your own sinful heart that's contributing to the mess? This is the number one key to marriage counseling. You bring a couple right away to say, please do not tell me what your spouse is doing wrong. I want to know right now, what are you doing wrong to contribute to this mess? Just don't tell me about her or him. Tell me about how self-absorbed you can be. Some of the things you have said. What are you doing that's contributing to the problem? And when two people in any kind of conflict stop blaming and pointing and start looking within their own lives, what is wrong with me? How can I fix myself so that I could better serve other people? If you've got two people thinking like that, you're going to have a blessed marriage and you're going to have healing. So the first thing he has to do is say, you've got to start looking at your own problems. What causes the problems? It's your own sinful heart. You've got to get control of that or rather let the Lord get control of that. Really, when an unsubmitted, proud Self-seeking spirit gets control of the helm. Brace yourself for a crash landing where there are going to be lots of casualties. And so you'll notice that he uses the word battle. You've got this battle going on inside of you. Here's the deal. We are all Christians. Uh, most of us are Christians in here. But the sinful nature survives conversion. And the sinful nature is to be reckoned dead. And the Holy Spirit comes into a new believer's heart and life and deactivates that primal sinful impulse that's all about me. He likens it to being crucified. He says, well, you were, with, you were, you were uh, crucified with Christ. And it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. The problem is, is that Like in the princess bride, the sinful nature is just mostly dead. And and I've, I've used this a lot before. And it's always funny because we always relate to this. Listen, Jesus says, you can reckon it as dead as you'd like it to be because I've unplugged it. 
And if you reckon it dead by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within you, he will kill that part of you that keeps wanting to sabotage, ruin your life, and make it all about you. Now it'll be me on the throne. And as you fill with my word and my will and my wisdom and my Holy Spirit, I will keep that beast at bay. The problem is, when you don't do that, you can still be saved. And that dead old self can be aroused and take control of the helm again. And that's exactly what happened here. The Bible says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. But when the old nature is allowed to kind of rise up from the dead, that's when all your problems begin. You know, like a bad zombie movie, you know? (laughs) When anything rises up from the dead, you know that it's usually not a good sign. Now, instead of a climate of peace necessary for these good deeds to be done, there was an atmosphere of constant fighting. How miserable was that church? Think about it. You know, the Proverbs say, better a dry crust of bread for dinner where there's peace and quiet than a house full of luxurious feasting with strife. That's Proverbs 17.1. And another one, Proverbs 15, verse 17, that says, better to have a few carrot sticks for dinner than prime rib where there's hate. So better a few celery stalks and some carrots with love than prime rib where there's a bunch of squabbling and discontent and hate. How miserable that church must have been. And so what does he say? Let's start with the list, he says. You want something, but you don't get it. The English word for want there is unfortunate. It should really be lust. It's the word epithumeo in the Greek. Here's the definition. A fierce desire for something with zero regard for how its morality or consequences of obtaining it are. It's used, really, um, of that core primal longing, that instinct of unregenerated man, of man at his worst, that part of us that just cries out to be satisfied. It's used of the prodigal son in the pig pen when he's longing to fill his stomach with the slop the pigs were eating. That's the same word. And in a moral sense, Jesus uses it when he says, you've heard it said, you should not commit adultery. But watch out for the lust in your heart because that kind of lust is the seed of adultery. That that word for lust, a man who lusts upon a woman has committed adultery in his heart is the same word. So he's saying you want something and then you say, if you give way to that, I don't care I'm married. I don't care if it's illegal. I don't care if I get caught. I don't care what God thinks. So don't be too surprised that this kind of thing can degenerate into murderous intent, Christian or no. And then James adds another word here. He says, you kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. Now he introduces a second word. The first word, as I mentioned, epithumeo, is lusting. And now he, he, he mentions covet. Coveting. In the Greek, zelao, and here's the definition. In this context, it's a kissing cousin of lust. 
to burn or to boil, wanting what doesn't belong to you or wasn't intended for you to enjoy. And the 10th commandment is about that as well. Now, how could he be talking about to committed believers? He says, you kill, kill, the word for murder. You want something, you don't get it, you kill. How can he be talking about to believers? And a lot of people say, well, he's not really talking to believers. Excuse me. Chapter 1, verse 2. Consider pure joy, my brothers. Chapter 1, verse 16. Don't be deceived, my brothers. Chapter 1, 19. My dear brothers. 2, 1. Brothers. 2, 5. My dear brothers. 2, 14. My, what good is it, brothers? Chapter 3, verse 1. My brothers. Chapter 3, verse 10, my brothers, this should not be. Chapter 3, verse 12, my brothers. Chapter 4, verse 11, brothers, do not slander one another. Chapter 5, verse 7, my brothers, be patient. Chapter 5, verse 9, don't grumble against each other, brothers. Chapter 5, verse 10, brothers. 5.12, brothers. 5.19, brothers. Do not kill and covet, brothers. We are capable of doing anything. Ask King David, a man after God's own heart, whose coveting and lusting came together in an evil kiss in his heart. And what was born? Murder. Taking a stroll on a roof, he sees the object of his coveting and his lust. They come together. We don't care about him. We don't care about the harp. We don't care about the palace. We don't care about being raised up from a sheep pen. We care about, we want that woman. Send for her. Who is she? And out comes a reply. Isn't she Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Three reasons why you should stop this now. Number one, Eliam is one of your friends. The father of Bathsheba was one of David's fighting men. Out of 30, he was one of the trusted 30. So the line comes to him, oh, that would be your friend who wants to take a bullet for you. One of your friends. Your BFFs, his daughter, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who's now serving you on the battlefield. And that would be adultery because she's married. But as James says, lust, coveting, unbridled passion, let loose in a Christian life, a man who loves God, who just has a lapse and lets the zombie rise up and say, me want Bathsheba. (laughs) Well, boss, you know, she is the grandson of your chief counselor, the granddaughter, rather, of somebody who I don't even mention. The daughter of a friend of yours and the wife of somebody now serving And did we mention that about the thou shalt not commit adultery part? Bring her. That's how it goes. 
There's somebody in the way. She's got a husband. Owe him. Kill him, but make it look like an accident. Nathan rebukes him nine months later and says, You monster. God would have given you anything you wanted, and you had to have your own way. Now the sword will never leave your family. Things will never be the same. God has taken away your sin. You will not die. But your life will never be the same. You can't do like those kinds of things and just pray and God say, oh, you're forgiven and no consequences. That you may be forgiven and you may be in heaven, but there are going to be some really painful consequences and that's why nobody should go kill James to a Christian congregation. Well, it may be literal, but more than that, it probably is figurative. Who hasn't, when you write somebody off, when you say, you know what, I really don't care about you, I'm going to do this. You're a zero, you're a nobody. What are you doing? When you gossip and slander and destroy somebody in character, assassinate the, the people who don't agree with your view on the piano bench, well, you haven't killed them? You, yes, you have. Jesus said, look, folks, you're used to thinking, thou shalt not murder, quite literally. But I'd like you to think a little deeper. When you have hate and anger in your heart, what's different between you and a murderer? Just you haven't done it yet. Jesus says, he who rages in his heart is akin to the murderer. And then in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16, John says, you know, when somebody hates somebody, they're murderer. There's murder in there. I wish you were dead, you say, in hatred. Huh? Yeah. If you had the guts and it was a bad situation, you might exactly do that. But for the most part, he's saying, you know, you're destroying each other with your mouth. You, don't, you can't have what you want. And so you just tear into that person and it just doesn't matter. Uh, I was at Azure Acres counseling somebody. They just called the church and said, we need a pastor a man was sitting on the edge of his bed. I went in to the rehab center there in beautiful Sebastopol. A well-off investment broker got into a little drinking, got into gambling, and then he was embezzling his company. Everything came apart. His wife and two daughters left him. He's sitting there sobbing. He said to me, I sold them down the river. There's a big picture of them. That's a beautiful family. He said, I sold them down the river for what I wanted. So you see, that's what James is saying. You know, you don't care when you give yourself over to coveting and, and desire. You're just broken. You just, you know, he, he didn't lay a finger on them to hurt them. He loves them. But mayhem resulted. Why? Because of his unbridled lusting and desires. Um, and so when you got a bunch of me first people in the room, someone's going to get hurt. And, you know, he did say, when he said, I sold my wife and kids down the river, um, I said, you did, but there's a way to get them back. And he, he just lit up. Tell me the way to get them back. And I said, gladly. I'm glad you asked, by the way. Um, 
And right here, he says, here comes the ray of hope here. And my last point, to the remedy now. He's laid out the reasons for it. And he gives us a little sunshine. Not a lot, but a little. He says, in essence, you don't have what you're truly longing for because you haven't asked God to satisfy you. So how ironic James is saying. You're after all of this pleasure and goodness. You want to be satisfied. And truth be told, if, if perhaps you would have gotten one of those uh, squabbling Christians and set them down and said, what, what is up with you? What's going on here? Here's what they might say. They would say, I want to be respected and well thought of. I want to be popular and have a sense of meaning. I want to feel worth something. I want to have nice things and be well off and, or comfortable. I want to reach my fullest potential. I want to have sexual intimacy and fulfillment. I want security and peace of mind. I want to be loved. James would say, yeah, but you're going at it the wrong way. You have turned those things into God and you are going after the thing and that becomes idolatry. And so you, you don't have because you haven't asked God. Those two words, to covet and to lust, both can be used very rarely, but both can be used for something good. When Paul the Apostle says, I would that you covet the spiritual manifestations in your life, sometimes called the gifts. I would that you lust after that. Jesus said, a day is coming when you will lust, same word, for the longing, lust for the coming of the Son of Man. So that we can lust and covet for the things of God. So James is just turning the tables on him, showing the remedy. You don't have what you want because you're looking for it directly. You're thinking that's your answer. Go after the thing. Make it yours. He says, no, you have to go after God. And God provides the things. It's just such a subtle difference. It's not that the things that they want necessarily are wrong. It's how they're going about it that is the biggest problem. And so uh, James is saying, love God, seek him. Don't pursue the thing, pursue God, and all those things will be added to you. Ask Solomon. He said, you know what? My full-time job was to find out if pleasure can really satisfy your heart. So for my full-time job, with all the money I had as king, and nobody as rich as me on the planet, and no one as smart as me on the planet, I just set my mind, and the whole book of Ecclesiastes tells the story. He says, this is what I did. I said, you know what I'm going to find out? With all my resources and all my smarts, is there a way to be happy without God? Check, 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 check. Money, wealth, harems at my beck and call. Zoological projects, architectural projects, accomplishments, working with my hands, dreaming and scheming and seeing it come. And he says, you know what? Meaningless. He says, I'm the smartest guy. I had the most money of all of you of all time, and I made it my full-time desire. Can the heart of man be satisfied with stuff? And he said, never happened. Even wisdom and learning. Can't do it. And then there's that 1,600-year-old prayer. 
Try this one, James says. Almighty God, you have made us for yourself. Our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. So lead us by your spirit that in this life we may live to your glory and in the life to come enjoy you forever. As C.S. Lewis put it this way, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. That's what he's saying. He's saying, here's your remedy. Change your aim. Your aim is off. And then he can hear them say, we do pray. And then he says, yeah, you do pray, but with the wrong motives. You think of God as your genie, your errand boy, your waiter, your fairy godmother. Oh, here I am. Oh, I have three wishes. Can you do this for me and this for me and this for me? He says, it doesn't work that way. He says, when you are his servant and when, the, when, when God's glory is priority in your life and obedience and you understand he's the master, I'm the servant, I live for his good pleasure. When his word remains in you and you in him and you walk in his love, he says, ask away, Jesus says, John 15. Ask away and it'll be done for you. But James says, hey, you ask for yourself. Me, 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 me. There's nothing wrong with saying, I have a dream about this and I have a desire here and I have this to accomplish for you, I want. But it needs to be submitted to God's will, God's glory, and be in righteousness and in humbleness. It has to meet his standards. And when you're in love with him and you want to do his will, Those prayers are answered, but not when it's all about us. And so James' friends had wrong motives in their prayers. He says, redirect your aim and put the Lord on the throne instead of yourself. It's not that God wants to withhold pleasure. He says in Psalm 16, you have made known to me the path of life. And at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore here's their aim at the pleasures forevermore without the Lord at your right hand are the pleasures my heart is for the Lord the pleasures come with him you see so it's like a person who says I want forgiveness I I want the blessing of peace I want the blessing of walking with the Lord and dying and going to heaven give me the streets of gold but Jesus please Jesus I could do without. And all of his restrictive commands. I can't do this. I can't do that. I've got to always think about you, you, you. I want to be blessed. I need this. I need it now. I need it how I want it, when I want it, and how I like it. That doesn't go over with him so well. You see, we want the pleasure We just don't want the one who grants the pleasure. And then James just gives it to us and says, you know, that's like cheating on him. And your desire now has become the other woman or the other man. He says, you're you're betrothed to him. He's the bridegroom. He's the lover of your soul. And the second you are wooed away by the things of the world and want to become a friend to the world, he says, you can't do that. 
Jesus says, you're cheating hard. You know, he starts breaking into a little country and western song. He has said that to Israel. And Hosea, the entire book of Hosea is saying, what up, wife? You keep running after Baal and you keep running after Molech and you keep running after this and that. Aren't I good enough for you? He says, it feels like you're cheating on me when you say, oh, I want to cozy up to the immoral world and immoral practices and you're lured away by the friendship of the world. He says, you put yourself on the other end. When I was in Pepsi, I worked for Pepsi for two years as I was pastoring. I was a Pepsi guy and proud of it. (laughs) But I'd wear my blue polyester with pride. And one day, I picked up a Diet Coke because I was thirsty and I was in line and I just opened the door and I was with a buddy from Pepsi. We were working together. And I held the, the Diet Coke in my hand and he went, oh, what are you doing? Put that down. You're going to get fired. Said, it is number one policy. You are fired on the spot for touching a Coke product in uniform. Do you blame them? What? I, I, I slave for the man, but I don't drink the man's product. I mean, I slave for that company, but when it comes to satisfying my thirst, it's Coke. <laughs> you know? It doesn't work. The second I cozy up to Coke in any way and put it to my lips, I have become an enemy to Pepsi. Pepsi says, how could you put that to your lips? And ingest that poison. <laughs> well, you, you see what I'm saying. You know, God says, oh, come on. You palsy-walsy with Lady Gaga. Oh, how can you be palsy-walsy with Lady Gaga? Just answer me this. And say, on my other arm, the Holy Lord of Glory. <laughs> It's Jesus on this one arm and Lady Gaga on this arm. We're going to the prom. (laughs) You're going to get torn in two. And I'll tell you who's going to lose. The one on the left. Can't cozy up. They're saying, look, it's not that big of a deal. It's hard to walk that straight and narrow path. We just got to kind of water it down a little bit and cozy up and not be so... uh, straight and narrow and narrow-minded. He says, you're going to break faith. You're going to break faith. It would be like President Obama's chief of staff spending every weekend with George Bush at the ranch. (laughs) Where have you been? Playing some golf? With who? Well, uh, President Bush. Why weren't you playing golf with me? Well, uh, he invited me. Well, where were you last weekend? Down at his ranch. Really? That doesn't go over. What's wrong? You got a problem with him? Maybe he does. So all James is saying, look, your allurement, your enticement, your linking arms, your partnering, you're cheating. And how are you ever going to be blessed when you're cheating. Just the final thoughts here. The good news. He closes on a up swing. The, 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 the um, paraphrase. Of course God knows how easily we go astray. It's right there in the scriptures. He says he knows how we're made. He made us. 
He knows what is in a man. That is why he gives us much grace. He opposes the proud, but he'll give you grace if you're humble. Now, so we get the point. Redirect your aim by repositioning yourself. Your servant, he's the Lord. Look to God for the source of life and meaning and blessing and joy. And he's patient. He knows you're weak. He knows. As soon as the bells and whistles go off, you're like, whoa. He knows. He understands that. And he says, if you humble yourself, I'll give you the grace and the strength and the ability to resist the appeal of the world and to remain loyal to me. I will give you the grace. If you humble yourself, you say, I'm sorry. It's all about me. I am kind of uh, stubbornly uh, going after things I shouldn't. And I want Jesus to be Lord of my life. If you humble yourself, he says, I will give you the ability to resist the appeal of the world and remain loyal to me. What will come of that? Clean conscience. A real satisfied life because you're connected to the God who made you. You'll never find that peace until you find the one and walk with the one who made you and designed you. Peace in your heart, the sense of God's love as your father that you're looking for, and your desires will be just simplified. You'll be satisfied. As you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. Let's pray. Father, help us. We, it's hard to be not far from the ground in our old natures, but with your new nature in us, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us, Father, to honor you, to lay our lives down and be blessed and to stay away from the scary, self-centered, self-absorbed life that just brings chaos. Help us, we pray. We dedicate ourselves to your care. In Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org. 